When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Presidencies of the United States is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. As this is an episode of our special series, A Seat at the Table, I'm joined today by a fellow podcaster, and we're going to be discussing the life and career of a cabinet member. Now, it is my pleasure to be able to welcome not just a fellow podcaster, but someone who I've grown to become friends with over the years as we've collaborated numerous times, Kenny Ryan of the Abridged Presidential Histories Podcast. Kenny, thank you so much for being on today. Jerry, thanks for having me back. I'm so excited to be here. And you got me already at the edge of my seat to discover who we're going to be talking about. As you were just queuing that up, we're going to be talking about a cabinet member. I was like, who's it going to be? (laughs) Not going to tell you just yet. But (laughs) for, for those who haven't listened to the episode already, Kenny was on previously and we talked about Attorney General Charles Lee. He is not one of the more well-known cabinet members. However, we had a delightful time talking about him. So if you haven't checked out that episode, highly recommend going back and checking it out. Kenny, before we get started and I reveal who we're going to be discussing today, I just wanted to give you a minute to talk about your podcast, tell folks kind of what you do and where they can find you. Thank you so much, Jerry. Uh, My podcast is Abridged Presidential Histories. And mine is kind of almost the opposite conceit of Jerry's. While Jerry gives you these fantastic deep dives, no stones unturned, really, you get to know every character in the book. I hit every president in an hour or less. A bridge is a bridge. So an hour or less in chronological order. And I'll also interview historians uh, to give deeper dives into some of those areas of the presidency that you just can't really properly do when you're trying to stick to an hour or less. Please come check it out. You can find it at APH Podcast, uh, Abridged Presidential Histories on any podcast platform. Uh, also, I, I'm not sure when this episode we're recording right now will come out, but I am in the process of recording an episode that Jerry is a guest on. So come check out the uh, Warren G. Harding episode, and you'll be able to hear a guest appearance from uh, my good friend Jerry on the show. Excellent. And... I like that you're now doing the interviews as well as the abridged version. And I I think you're starting to get a little more towards my realm, expanding a little more <laughs> with these interviews. And you have the experts. You know, it's not just me researching. It's you get to talk with all of these great experts, historians, and it's just been fascinating to hear their perspectives. So I, I really like that you've really built on that over the years. Thank you so much. It's, it's a delight talking to them. They're so generous with the time. I really appreciate it. 
Absolutely. And for our audience, I will have information about Abridged Presidential Histories on my social media around the release of this episode, as well as on the sources section for this episode. But without further ado, I'm not going to make Kenny wait any longer. (laughs) Kenny, I invited you on for a very special reason. We are going to be discussing a guy you may have heard of named James Madison. Ooh, Madison, madman. The Mad Max of the Revolutionary Founding Fathers. (laughs) So, and the reason that I wanted to invite you on for this episode, A, you're already familiar with Madison. You you did an episode on him. You know, he's been a part, and and especially in those early days of the presidency, he was heavily involved. Mm -hmm. But also, this one... I had to really think of in terms of how to approach it because when this episode is released, we're still in the middle of the Madison presidency series (laughs) and the narrative. Yes. So the audience is already pretty familiar with this guy. So the way that I'm going to do it, and I'm going to take a cue from Kenny's book. Mm. So folks may not know this, and, and I don't think I've ever shared this with the audience or guest. But basically, whenever I go in to do one of these episodes, I do an outline, and I have right now five key sections. So Mm. one is kind of the early life. The second is covering the Revolutionary War years, because we're still in the midst of cabinet members who had something happen during those years. Mm -hmm. Then we talk about the Confederation and Constitution Mm -hmm. times which leads into the fourth section, their actual cabinet career. And then the fifth, of course, after they leave the cabinet. Yeah. So for this episode, I'm going to, instead of doing the deep dive that I usually do into cabinet members, and especially those folks that we may not be quite as familiar with, since we're pretty familiar with Madison, I'm going to try and do an abridged version (laughs) of James Madison's life And for each of these sections, we will have three key takeaways at the end of the section. We will go into more depth, of course, with his tenure as Secretary of State, because that's why he's actually getting an episode on this special series. So Mm -hmm. I felt that we should do a a bit of a deeper dive into there. But with the rest, I'm going to try making an abridged version. And then everything else will go as usual on this episode. So, Kenny, are you ready to see me try and abridge presidential history? I believe in you, Jerry. I I think that you are going to do this so well that that you're you're going to be like, oh, man, maybe I should just do future presidents in 30 minutes. That'll show Kenny. (laughs) (laughs) I'll one up him. I can do it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's see what we can do. Let's dive into James Madison. Yes, yes. It's been so long since I talked about James Madison, too. I'm already like, I remember some some fragments coming to mind, but uh, I, I can't wait to to relive and, and re-explore these Madison years. Yes, and hopefully this will help to kind of jog your memory. Yeah. So, of course, we start at the beginning, you know, James Madison's early life. Now, Madison's family had actually been in Orange County, Virginia since 1732, which is when his grandfather, Ambrose Madison, moved his wife and children to the area. We should note that the people that they enslaved were moved to the area as well, 
and would establish an extensive community network of enslaved individuals throughout the region over the next few decades. So this wasn't just the Madisons relocating, but also these other families and other individuals. That's important to note. Mm -hmm. So this estate that came to be known as Montpelier, it, it would take some time before that name was applied to it, but it would eventually be known as Montpelier. It was built up by Ambrose's son and our Madison's father, who was conveniently named James Madison Sr. <laughs> so I think you'll remember his name. <laughs> yeah. So Madison Sr. married Nellie Conway, and their first son, James Madison Jr., our Madison, was born on March 16, 1751. Sr. and Nellie would end up having 12 children total, seven of whom survived to adulthood. So you know, as we've talked about with other cabinet members in the series this was a time where child mortality was still pretty high but yeah you know seven out of 12 was seen as you know pretty good the the and you know hopefully he didn't kill any of the others like it's a non-traumatic childhood where he just he just survived on his own exactly exactly and so i i mentioned that he was born in 1751 the last child was born in october 1774. Wow. Which means that there was over 20 years of childbirth for Nellie Madison. Do, do you get a medal for that? <laughs> I think she should. I, I think she deserves a medal. Or an apology. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, and we're sorry. We're sorry. <laughs> but Senior was a prominent local leader in Orange County and the vicinity. So these, you know, as Madison Jr. was growing up, these were pretty big shoes to fill. You know, his father was one of the the most well-respected people in the area. Good pedigree. Good pedigree. So as was sometimes the case for children of Virginia planters, Madison's education started with his mother. Then he was enrolled in an academy for five years. He returned home after that for two years of additional work with a private tutor who likely taught some of the younger siblings at the same time. You know, if you're going to have a tutor, might as well go ahead and get all the kids educated. Yeah. So when it came time for Madison to go to college, the decision was made to send him to the College of New Jersey, which we now know of as Princeton University. Mm hmm. And this was the time when most of the planner sons of Virginia would go to the College of William and Mary, which was in Williamsburg in Virginia. Right, right, yeah. But it sounds like Senior wanted a more innovative approach to education for his son. And there were also these concerns about Junior's health. Mm -hmm. You know, he was described as being rather sickly most of his life. And there were concerns that being in the Tidewater, that that may not be a good environment for his health. So they ended up sending him north where disease was less rampant and just better environmental conditions. I'm pretty sure that's the same reason all the cast members on Jersey Shore were there. Uh, <laughs> I, think it's, I never watched the show, but I'm pretty sure same thing. Yeah, th they couldn't handle like the, the swampy whatever. We're just here for our health. <laughs> And MTV. That was an MTV show, right? I don't know. Oh, yeah. 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 This is, this is an energy drink, right? Right. <laughs> I've had All like right. 20 of them. It's an energy drink. <laughs> <laughs> and all the tanning, you know, that health. 
health. Absolutely. I, you know, people often talk, James Madison, shortest of the presidents, but he was also the most artificially tanned of the early presidents. <laughs> Nobody talks about that, but it's- Who knew? Yeah, it's probably true. <laughs> yeah, probably true. So he was chilling on the Jersey Shore, you know, as people do. <laughs> yes. Him and Snooky, and yeah, the whole right. crew. <laughs> so though Madison did throw himself into his studies, and he was he actually came with this determination that he was going to finish his coursework early. You say I'm going to be here for three years. I'm going to make it happen in two. You know, he was he was very set on, very determined to really crack down on his work. But this didn't mean that he didn't make some friends while he was there. And he it, there are actually these descriptions of him being rather popular. So it's it's interesting. It's not something, and especially knowing like Madison later in life, you don't think of Madison as being the popular guy, but it seems like he was pretty popular. You know, I, I do want to point out here that we, we shouldn't knock Madison for having only attended college for, for two years. Uh, I remember when I went to school, I had a friend who graduated in three and I graduated in five and I got almost 100 percent more college education than they did. You know, so uh, let, let's not be too harsh on the guy for, for graduating in two years. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know, if that's really what you want to do, that's fine. I want to take some time to let it soak in a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. But some of his classmates actually included some folks, including one that we've talked about, a future attorney general who was named William Bradford. Ah. He had his own episode on the series. Also, future Supreme Court Justice Henry Brockholz Livingston. Philip Furneaux, who we talked about in the Washington presidency series and was a pain in the neck for President Washington. Oh, yeah. <laughs> And there was also this other guy that he, he knew that went to the College of New Jersey around the same time. You may have heard of this guy, Aaron Burr. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. Does that name ring a bell? It, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I've heard of him. I've heard of him. Yeah. Uh, shot in the dark somewhere, you know, sounds familiar. Yeah. Shot in the dark. Yeah. <laughs> and so in late September 1771, Madison graduated from college, but he actually stayed on in Princeton for a few more months to do some additional studies with the college president. You get the sense that he was he was kind of reluctant about going back to Montpelier. He had just had this great experience at college, as some of us do, and he was like, I'm not really wanting it to end. I'm, I'm also already reminded of why I considered him the nerdiest of the early presidents. <laughs> <laughs> hey, want to come to the lake with us this summer? No, I'm going to study with the university president. Mm. <laughs> you you can picture <laughs> the pocket protector. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But in April 1772, he finally returned back to Montpelier. And after such an amazing college experience, going back to rural, quiet Orange County was a bit of a letdown, and Madison struggled for a bit with where he was going in life, because that never happens after college, right? Yeah, he just sat there and watched The Graduate on repeat like we all do. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but in late 1773, early 1774, due to some events that were going on in Virginia, Madison actually became interested in the concept of religious freedom and toleration. And this would become a major theme throughout the rest of his career. 
he really committed to this idea of religious freedom. And so this is kind of where that starts. He also attempted to take up the study of law, but he quickly realized, ah, this just isn't for me. Mm. Reading these books, I love reading books, just not the legal text. Let's just, let's push those aside. Let me get out something about, you know, governmental policy. That's, that's the stuff. It's funny. He's he's already starting to remind me of our other future Princeton president, uh, Woodrow Wilson, who graduated, said, I'm going to become a lawyer. Never mind. I'm not going to become a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> they were on the same track. You know, Madison kind of forged the way for Wilson in that. <laughs> Absolutely. The growing tensions between the British homeland and the North American colonies opened up an opportunity for Madison to begin to engage in this field that would become his primary occupation for decades after, government. Mm, mm -hmm. Before we get to that, let's talk about our three key takeaways from Madison's early life. Number one, Montpelier and family would be at the heart of James Madison's life throughout the rest of his days. Mm Mm-hmm. Two, Madison was always down for diving into research unless it was the law. (laughs) And three, Madison was also good at making connections. Mm, Yes, yes, yes. And so all three of these are going to be important as we go along. But we've got this thing coming up. You know, there are tensions between the North American colonies and the British government. And so the First Continental Congress is formed, comes together, tries to talk about what to do. And they actually call on local areas to form, quote, a committee of safety to enforce the ban on trade approved by the Congress. So, you know, the First Continental Congress puts in this economic coercion. Let's, you know, let's try and stop trading with British goods, let's make more homespun, more things, you know, and and so, but you need to make sure that folks are actually abiding by this ban. We want it to be voluntary, but really, just just do it, just do it. Hey, side note: Have you ever heard of uh, the the five days in Milan, the cigarette boycott? No. So, uh, decades later. In the 19th century in Europe, Milan, an Italian city, is controlled by the uh, Austrian Empire. And they don't like being controlled by the Austrian Empire. So they say, oh, let's take a pledge from the Americans' playbook and we'll protest and boycott a good that we get from Austria. And the good that they decided to boycott is they all, at the same time, the whole city, cold turkey, cut uh, cigarette smoking. <laughs> and they all that sounds so dangerous. <laughs> they like went all in. They're like, yeah, there'll be no problem. We're all just going to stop smoking, right? And so I can only imagine there were people just like jittery, you know, like freaking out, like trying to keep an eye on each other. But then the, <laughs> the Austrians, being absolute pricks and wanting to start something, the general of the city gave out extra cigarette rations to his soldiers. And he said, just walk around and puff smoke in all the uh, people's faces <laughs> until the riot starts. So we can quell the riot and just put this to bed. So uh, anyway. Wow. Another part of it from history where another country's like, let's uh, do what the Americans did, but a little different and uh, different things happen. So if you're going to boycott, don't boycott the most addictive substances known to man. Uh, is is the lesson here? You know, tea. Yeah. Good idea. Great job. Tea. Way to go. Don't jump right into like cigarettes or any hard drugs like that. 
are at least not without some nicotine patches for the entire town. (laughs) Because I'm just picturing somebody riding into Milan. Why is everybody so jittery? What's going on here? What did I I ride into? (laughs) What's wrong with everybody? Why are y'all looking at me like that? (laughs) Hold hold on. I need a cigarette. No! (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Yeah, so I'm glad to know that we inspired them, but yeah, probably should have chosen another product. <laughs> so Americans, we're boycotting other things. Committee of Public Safety. We're we're boycotting tea, we're boycotting, you know, some British goods, but you need folks to kind of help to make sure that this ban is enforced. And so in December 1774, James Madison Sr. was chosen as the chairman of the local committee while his son was chosen to fill one of the other seats on the 11-person committee. Hmm. Can't imagine why they would have chosen James Madison Jr. for this committee. (laughs) I I also, though, I'm like, do you really want to start your career being on the committee that's telling everybody to not do the stuff they want to do? Like, (laughs) let's just just start on that unpopular track, knocking the cigarettes out of people's mouths and the tea bags (laughs) out of their hands, you know? Yeah, well, and you also wonder, you know, if senior, if this was kind of a, a deliberate, well, I don't really want to be James Jr. Just just go and, and knock that tea bag out of nice. the person's head. <laughs> no, they can't have their tea. <laughs> and Jr. would initially attempt to help his father with the local militia as well. Mm-hmm. But after an embarrassing episode where he suffered first a stomach ache and then a fainting spell in the middle of militia drills. James Madison Jr. decided he was more of a thinker, not a fighter. So he kind of backed off on that one. I I knew he was always like kind of a sickly president. I hadn't heard of the the fainting at militia drills. That's not not a great way to instill confidence in the men. (laughs) Right in front of everybody. Yeah, Yeah. It, it was not his it was not his best time. But with this thinking, you know, this is something that Madison could do. He would increasingly spend more time researching political theory and forms of government. And thus, when a convention was called in Virginia for May 1776, Sr. used his influence to have his son selected as one of the two delegates from Orange County. Now, if you thought that he met notables before at college, this convention had the likes of George Washington Thomas Jefferson, Edmund Randolph, Richard Henry Lee, Patrick Henry, and more. This was, you know, he was surrounded by these people that were already pretty prominent and only had further to go. Madison himself didn't have a really great influence at this convention, which you can imagine with so many other prominent folks there. Yeah. You know, who's this little, little sickly guy from Orange County? Right. Yeah. But he did contribute to the cause of religious freedom with an amendment to the draft Declaration of Rights to guarantee not just religious toleration, but, quote, the full and free exercise of religion. Good job, Madison. This wasn't just saying, okay, well, we know that there are other religions out there. We'll kind of tolerate them. This is saying, no, everybody has the right to practice their religion. Yeah. And I mean, we are a famously <laughs> litigious country, you know, like it, it sounds like oh, that's just two words. What's the big difference? Oh, it's a big difference 
between freedom and tolerance. And uh, so, yeah, it, it's a huge moment in, in terms of setting the tone for the country. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so this committee, after putting forward a new state constitution, continued on as the temporary state House of Delegates until the permanent members could be elected. Now, Madison, even though this was a temporary position, you know, until the permanent one came in place, he threw himself into the work and he assumed that he would be elected to a full term in the House. You know, didn't really do too much. I did this one big thing. I'm throwing myself into this work. Of course, I'm going to be you know, get a permanent seat. The dream of political volunteers everywhere. <laughs> but as he was against the practice of plying voters with liquor at the polling place in order to get their votes, which was I remember that pretty much how elections ran at that time. You know, every candidate that wanted to win, you just make sure to have more booze than the other person. And everybody's convinced, you know what? You're the guy. No, 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 no. No, let's redirect you over here. That's where you put your vote. That's the bathroom. Don't want to put it in there. Yep. And remember, this, there's no secret ballot. Everybody <laughs> knows where you're voting, you know, so it's very easy to see. Be like, drink my beer, vote in my box. Exactly. Don't drink your beer and, drink and, hit and vote in his box. Exactly. And so that was that was the practice. Madison was against it. He felt that we should be held to a higher standard as voters and vote our conscience. He refused to provide all this free alcohol, and he lost handedly because the other candidates were like, what is this guy thinking? Let me order another barrel. <laughs> I really wonder what impact that had on his faith in democracy and government systems and all of that to, to have personally seen that we've created this democracy. We can choose who our leaders are. We can pave our own path. And you people are just voting for whoever buys you beer? Like, <laughs> what? What's, what's the point of democracy if that's how you're going to pick your leaders? What the heck? I, I wonder, you know, like what impact it had on him and his, his, like how he wanted to shape government in the future. And, you know, he really, and as we'll see more of, Madison could be rather pragmatic. You know, he had his ideas and his ideals, but when it came down to it, he was rather pragmatic. And so you kind of get the sense that he realized this is, you know, yeah, this really is how it is. And I just need to win. <laughs> and so needless to say, <laughs> yes. he never did that again. He went ahead and bought the alcohol for folks <laughs> mm -hmm. after this. Yep. yep. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. But his time out of government wouldn't be long because he was named to the Council of State in November 1777. And the Council of State was a group that was intended to support the governor and the executive branch of government. So he wasn't out of power for too long. Now, initially, the governor under whom he was serving was Patrick Henry. But Henry's mm. term was coming to an end, and he would be succeeded by this guy named 
Thomas Jefferson. TJ. TJ, here he is. And it's interesting because, you know, this is the first time that we actually know, you know, they served in the state convention together, but we don't really have any accounts or at least any that I've seen that they actually interacted. But we do know that in this instance, they did start interacting. It doesn't seem like they were necessarily too close at this point. And indeed, their time together would be cut short because in December 1779, Madison was elected to the Continental Congress. However, we know, I don't don't think it's going to be much of a shock to the listeners, that they would ultimately come together again and forge a strong bond. And so this Mm -hmm. is kind of the start of what would be a friendship and a partnership that would last throughout the majority of both men's careers. But going back to, you know, Madison was elected to the Continental Congress in December 1779. He assumed a seat in March 1780. And it would take him a few months before he felt that he had his bearings enough to really enter into the debate. And he finally, you know, he he started in March. He finally gave his first floor speech in November 1780. So he took a while just kind of sitting back, listening, learning, trying to figure things out. I, you know, Madison is famously the shortest of the president. I wonder if it just took him that long to realize he was raising his hand this whole time. <laughs> like he was seated being Thomas Jefferson was very tall and probably had like a puffy French wig because Jefferson was very into his French stuff. And it just took him <laughs> but long. To say, oh, Madison, is your hand up? How long is your three years? Oh, yeah, please calm down. Uh, what do you have to say? Either that or or the tall person that was right in front of him right. finally had to go and use the bathroom. And he's like, my chance, my chance. This is actually, this was why Lincoln wore that stovetop hat, you know, so that the person behind him would never get a chance to, you know, raise their hand and speak. So very, exactly. very political trickery, indeed. Political trickery. He learned all these tricks. He figured out... <laughs> Let's go ahead and bring a box to stand on so that I can actually be seen over this tall guy. <laughs> yes. And that's the thing, like this point in Madison's career. So Michael Singer in his book, Becoming Madison, credited this period of service in the Continental Congress with helping Madison to develop his method of political influence that would serve him so well in navigating legislative bodies. Because this will not be the last time that Madison serves in a legislature. But before we move on, let's go with three key takeaways from this time period of Madison Mm -hmm. and the revolution. Number one, Madison was not a fighter (laughs) at all, at least in the physical sense. Political, that's another story. But physical sense, no. I'm a legislator, not a fighter, baby. (laughs) (laughs) right there and number two madison was a political fighter especially (laughs) when the cause was religious freedom yeah yeah Mm -hmm. and three madison learned both by theory and practice how to effectively navigate through the legislative process so this is really a formative time for madison to really learn these skills that will help serve him as he moves on and as government in the U.S. starts to develop. So now this third time period, you know, we're getting out of the Revolutionary War. We've still got the 
Articles of Confederation, but mm-hmm. there's going to be a convention that's going to upend all that. There's going to be a new government. This is really the hardest period to consolidate because this is at the core of why people know James Madison beyond just being president. Yes, this is when all the uh, nerdery finally pays off and and he really has his biggest accomplishments. Madison's biggest hits. (laughs) (laughs) But let's see if we can really consolidate this and really get to an abridged version between now and his joining the cabinet. So first of all, Madison's tenure in the Confederation Congress would not just be all work and no play because he met Kitty Floyd and fell in love. But she ultimately called off their engagement in the summer of 1783. Dodge a bullet. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I just know that he's going to end up with Dolly, and Dolly's frigging great. So, <laughs> And that's the thing. Like, you know, if he would have known at that point that he was going to end up with Dolly, I think he would have been better off. But he was <laughs> devastated, you know? Yeah. Things seem to be going well. He's this is the first time a girl had ever let him hold her hand. I mean, it's really tough. <laughs> yeah. And he was heartbroken. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, he left Congress in October 1783. He returned home to Montpelier for the first time in three years. Went through an emo phase. <laughs> exactly. You know, this was this was Madison the emo years. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because he had to figure out what to do with the rest of his life. You know, he thought that he was on this track. His career was going well. He had this young lady that he liked. Seemed like she liked him. And then she broke his heart. Nothing's going well. The world is awful for Madison. (laughs) And again, he's just trying to consider, of course, he's not going to law. That's, That's a given. His father tried to encourage him. He's like, oh, well, you can become a planner just like me. We can get you some land. Everything's going to be fine. Yeah. James, you're born to a friggin' Virginia aristocratic family. You're going to be fine. You could go become like a painter or something. You're still going to be well off. Don't worry about it. <laughs> exactly. But, you know, Madison, he is like, at this point, that rural planner lifestyle was not for him. He had already gotten a taste of the big city. He was like, he wanted something more. Everyone laughed at him when he tried to get in his horse and he needed a box. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. He's like, I I can't do this. You know, not not right now. I need a desk job. A tiny desk job. (laughs) Tiny desk. (laughs) And so he actually, at this point, he toured New York with the Marquis de Lafayette. So, you know, Lafayette's still around. And so they go on this tour of New York. And he came back and he began a tenure in the Virginia House of Delegates in 1784. And he got to take up that cause that meant so much to him, religious freedom. In 1785, he successfully worked towards the passage of the statute for establishing religious freedom which was something that his friend Jefferson had worked on a while back, but Mm -hmm. hadn't been able to push through the Virginia legislature like Madison did. So Madison finished up the job that Jefferson started. Mm. Interesting. And Madison was then chosen as a delegate to a convention in Annapolis, Maryland in 1786, which was called to resolve some issues of interstate trade. Yeah. Now, this convention, the Annapolis Convention, ultimately 
did little of nothing because they weren't able to achieve a quorum. So they didn't have enough folks to really make anything happen. But it did allow Madison an opportunity to confer with a fellow delegate, Alexander Hamilton of New York, another one of those Hamilton. one of those obscure names, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and a call was issued for another convention in Philadelphia that they hoped would be better attended. There's more to do in Philadelphia. It's a nicer city. I mean, exactly. more like Scarlet Fever, but still very nice. <laughs> exactly. You know that it's like. Okay, maybe it's the locale. Maybe it really is location, location, location. It is. It wasn't, wasn't Philadelphia like the biggest city back then? I think it I, was. I don't know. Maybe New York was larger. Philadelphia's biggest. Yeah, Philadelphia is the biggest city at that moment. Yeah. So they're like, maybe we'll have more luck. And it, you know, it's like if you're putting together a convention and you're choosing between, oh, say, Omaha, Nebraska and Las Vegas. <laughs> right. Which one do you think is going to be better attended? You pick the one with more strippers, which is Philadelphia in this case. So Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Philadelphia had it all. <laughs> and so Madison did all that he could on the state level in Virginia and on the national level in another tenure in the Confederation Congress to build momentum towards this convention and trying to ensure the attendance of certain key figures, including George Washington, at this convention in Philadelphia in 1787. And, of course, we now know this little convention would come to be known as the Constitutional Convention. So Madison's key role here, besides drafting what would come to be dubbed the Virginia Plan and would form the primary basis of our current form of government, was in keeping notes of the debates of the convention. Mm, Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so beyond just, you know, his role in crafting, helping to craft the document, it's really because of Madison that we get a sense of what was happening in the debates and kind of how things came together, the compromises that came together, because they went ahead and imposed this strict veil of secrecy over the yep. convention's proceedings, yeah. because they wanted to be able to deliberate, they wanted to be able to speak freely, but if every five minutes you were hearing, oh, well, so-and-so said this. Oh, did you hear so-and-so said this? Oh, let's get him a note and try and influence. They didn't want that outside influence. They didn't want people to be, you know, oh, well, you know, so-and-so was for this monarchical type of government. Exactly. It's like, no, no, guys, like, we're brainstorming. There's no bad ideas, which means you can't tell everyone outside about all the bad ideas you're about to come up with. (laughs) Exactly. People are throwing some pretty crazy things around. Let's just go ahead and throw some things at the wall and we'll see what sticks. <laughs> yeah. Also very much like the first rule of constitutional conventions is don't talk about the constitutional convention, you know. <laughs> exactly. And George Washington was ready to enforce that. Oh, yeah. He's totally Brad Pitt in that room. <laughs> oh, yeah. Bringing the law down. <laughs> oh, yeah. And the thing of it was, so they came to this convention and – the initial sell for it was, we're just going to amend the Articles of Confederation. And as soon as they closed those doors and said, okay, everybody, we're keeping the secret. We're throwing out the Articles of Confederation. Just rip them up. We're done. Yep. (laughs) And so the U.S. Constitution was, of course, the result of these efforts. But there wasn't a guarantee after the convention 
that this new document would be ratified by the requisite number of states that were required to actually set it into motion. And Mm -hmm. they realized that in some cases, this was going to be a tough sell. You know, this document called for a stronger federal government. It was taking away some power from the states. Mm -hmm. And it was a risk. It was a risk. Especially for, say, the most powerful state, like, say, Virginia. Exactly. You know, there were plenty of folks in Virginia that were like, "Eh, we're not really sure. I mean, Washington says it's okay, but mm, we're not really sure. (laughs) And so Madison became part of the efforts to ratify the Constitution in a couple of key ways. So first, along with Hamilton and, to a lesser extent, John Jay, he contributed to an effort which is now known as the Federalist Papers. And this was a series of essays which were designed to explain the various sections and clauses of the Constitution to the public. And not just went over public support, but this was also intended to give some talking points to leaders in the various states who were going to these ratification conventions so that they could debate and have kind of a consistent federalist idea of what this new constitution meant, you know, because, and you think about it. And even now, if you read through the constitution, sometimes some of the language can be pretty dense and okay, what does this really mean? This was giving them, okay, well, this means a, B and C. Okay, okay, I understand that. So that was definitely needed. It's it's one thing whenever you're trying to launch a campaign like this, you've got to make sure that everybody's on the same page. And so this was key to doing that. The thing is, anytime you you create a document where there's a bunch of people weighing in on that document and contributing to it, it's going to get really muddled. And you're going to have things where everybody's like, nobody's happy with the sentence, but I'm tired of talking about it for 24 hours, so let's just leave it there. And then later you're like, what does that even mean? So yeah, like I mean, this stuff's like really important for uh, having people who are in there trying to explain and help decipher and decode it and unpack it for people. Exactly, exactly. Well, and of course, you know, they made it completely clear we don't have any debates over what the Constitution means, what the clauses are nowadays, right? Right. I'm actually <laughs> this Friday. I'm going to go see the show. What the Constitution means to me. Good show, by the way. There's a Netflix special. Highly recommend it. Nice. Yeah, I will have. I actually haven't watched that one. I'll have to oh, check it I'll out. Have to check Very it out. good. Very good. Um, the person who came up with it is like a kind of a family friend of my wife's. So I got oh wow, from there. Yeah. Oh cool. So, check it out. Encourage everybody. What the Constitution means to me. It's funny and makes you think. Excellent. Always good to get more recommendations. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So, you know, he's he's part of this effort, the Federalist Papers, but also, Kenny, as you said, there was no guarantee that Virginia was going to ratify the convention. In fact, there was a strong anti-Federalist group led by Patrick Henry who were saying, you know what? No, I think we're good. We don't need this strong federal government. We've got things handled on our own. Yeah. And they were in great shape. They they paid off their war debt. They'd, you know, had a strong economy. They obviously didn't want any kind of federal government that might mess with their whole slave system or anything like that, you know. Exactly. Why give any amount of power to a national government when you feel like you've already got it all, you know. So you can totally understand why some of them would have been reticent. 
Exactly. And so Madison, you know, was working with Hamilton on the Federalist Papers. They were busily, you know, scripting essay after essay. Folks in Virginia were writing to Madison, hey, you need to get back here now. If you want this constitution to be ratified, if you want Virginia to be part of this new union, you need to get back now. And so finally, he stopped work on the Federalist Papers. He's like, Hamilton, you're just going to have to bring it home from here. He left, went back to Virginia, and he managed to get himself elected to the state's constitutional convention, which even that, like even his father was writing him and he was like, you may not get elected unless you get back here now. And so he got back in time. He got back, he bought a lot of beer for his neighbors, and he got in there. <laughs> he he made sure to have the beer and ale ready. He was like, we're going to make this happen. And so at this convention, he provided a counterpoint to Patrick Henry's anti-federalist arguments. And you know, you look at the convention, and I believe it was like over 200 people in attendance, and there were really only like 20 people who spoke at the convention. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. who participate in the debates and by a large percentage of that it was really James Madison and Patrick Henry going back and forth mm-hmm. you know point counterpoint and it worked it was by a slim margin but Madison and the federalists ended up winning the day virginia ratified the us constitution joined the union now at the time madison thought oh, this was the last state that we needed to make sure that the Constitution actually happened. And so he sends this express rider to Hamilton. We did it. We did it. We're the ninth state. And then he got the word back. No, New Hampshire beat you to it. It was already a done deal. (laughs) (laughs) And you can picture him when he gets to Congress, which, spoiler alert, is coming. He gets to Congress. He sees the representative from new hampshire yeah he just he just gives him the evil eye <laughs> i see you i see right sit over there you. i see your soul <laughs> exactly now with this so we've got the constitution we've got this new form of government which will have a, a bicameral legislature the senate and the house of representatives and patrick henry at this point could not stand James Madison. He made sure that Madison was not elected as one of the first senators, which was actually where Madison wanted to go. And even George Washington was like, yeah, it'd be great to have you in the Senate. That wasn't happening. But he could go for election in the U.S. House of Representatives. And Do you remember, how were the first senators picked? Was it governor's choice or was it the state house picking them? For Virginia. The state legislature. State legislature. Guys. So yeah. Henry was just like, all right, guys, come on. <laughs> don't don't put yeah. that And at that point, Henry was such a force in Virginia politics that he was like, you know, no, this guy, Madison. And I mean, there's like no question. Like a Roman emperor with a thumb up or thumb down. Yeah, thumb down. Exactly. <laughs> a big thumb down. But he could still get elected to the House of Representatives. Henry had another little trick up his sleeve. He arranged the district, the congressional district that Madison's Montpelier was in to be the same one that James Monroe, where he lived, 
it was in the same district. Bum, bum, bum. James Monroe. Yeah. So you have the two Jameses. It's James versus James. And, you know, at that point, they had been friends before, but here they were having to compete against one another for this seat in the House of Representatives. And, and they'd actually been, if I remember right, they'd been on the opposite ends of a couple issues at this point. I want to say that James Monroe also opposed the uh, ratifying the Constitution. He had some very big concerns about it. Yes, he joined the Henry faction in the convention. He actually de- delivered a couple of speeches against it. So they they were having this opposition, but they were still, it was still like, okay, well, this is my friend, but I really want to be in the house. So... Yeah, I mean, we, we've all seen Hamilton. We know how it goes. It's like, your position is stupid. Sincerely, your obedient servant, James. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And so, you know, they have this hard-fought campaign. James Madison ultimately wins. And so he gets the seat in the House of Representatives. Now, upon assuming his seat, Madison quickly settles into the role of a key leader in the new government. You know, he's already been recognized for his efforts. He's really starting to make a name for himself. And he really knows how these legislatures work. He knows the the wheelings and dealings. And it helps that you're you're like in the Congress, everybody shows up and, you you know, it's like your first day of of work or school, new job. You're like, okay, what do I do? And you're looking around, what do I do? But everybody else is also new. So everybody's looking around like, okay, this is, what do we do? This is all new. How are we supposed to act? James Madison, he kind of like invented the system. Let's all ask him. So it's it's an incredibly influential place to be, to be in Congress, being the one who helped design and defend that system for Madison. Exactly. Well, and it also helps that the incoming president, George Washington, looked on Madison as a trusted advisor at this point. Yeah. You know, they had worked together on the ratification effort. They had started to get close and... Just to point out kind of the influence that Madison had, not just in the legislature, but in the executive branch in these early days, not only did Madison help write George Washington's first inaugural address, he also wrote the House response to the speech and the president's reply to the House response. So some of the first (laughs) documents of this new government is basically just James Madison talking to himself back and forth. That's my favorite part of all the Madison things. For some reason, that's my favorite part is that when the new government's created, he spends like the first few weeks just writing letters to himself. (laughs) 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 You know, kind of like complimenting himself. Oh, you're so great. Oh, no, you're so great. Oh, you're so great. Yeah. Everybody should listen to this guy, Madison. Yes, I agree. Everybody should listen to Madison. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's, you know, it's it's just, it's it's one of those quirky things about this new government. <laughs> yeah. But this position and this influence wouldn't necessarily last, at least with the executive, because with the return of Thomas Jefferson from France in late 1789, Madison soon found himself drifting into an opposition of the Washington administration. Mm-hmm. And this was despite the fact that Jefferson was, of course, the first Secretary of State. He was a member of the Washington administration. But Jefferson, too, was drifting into the opposition. So yeah. it's interesting to see this this shift in Madison's career and focus 
he never really got to the point that he was you know directly attacking Washington publicly right but he's also helping to support folks who are attacking yeah. Washington directly yeah. in the public yeah he's like right there with Jefferson kind of slipping into this political subterfuge of kind of being your friend to your face but you know when your backs are turned that's when the knives come out you know exactly yeah and it's interesting because you know at this point and that was one of the things one of the big things at the time folks were worried about factional politics they were worried about you know having this faction against another faction and so everybody was trying we're all americans we're all good everything's fine but meanwhile, you have Jefferson and Madison working behind the scenes <laughs> to craft this opposition faction. And this faction, their work would give President Washington headaches for the rest of his tenure of office. They even helped found an opposition press working with that guy that he knew back in his Princeton days, Philip Freneau. They founded an opposition press, and Freneau was, he grew increasingly fanatic and just very anti-Washington and Washington couldn't stand it. We don't talk about Fru. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm curious if you, if you got this sense when it comes to Madison and Jefferson, I remember I very much got the sense that it was like a partnership where Madison was kind of like the, the brains and Jefferson, the charisma, not to say Jefferson didn't have brains, but it felt like they like that was kind of each person's corner. Did you get a sense of that, or how how do you feel the the partnership worked? Well, and it's interesting because uh, actually in in doing research for the Madison series, I actually read quite a few scholars who thought, and it does kind of make sense whenever you look at it. It wasn't necessarily that Jefferson was always going to end up kind of as the senior partner in yeah. this this arrangement. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you look at, you know, Madison was this legislative leader. He was in some ways more respected than Jefferson, who had been off in France for years. He knew more of the movers and shakers. Jefferson was coming into this. He knew folks in Europe, but back in the U.S. That's a great point. That's a great. It's easy to, to get lost and remember, OK, we know Jefferson's going to be you know president first. So he must have been the senior of the pair. It, it, that's a really good point. But you do start to see the shift, and especially as you get towards the election of 1796, and then those four years of the Adams presidency, you start to see that Jefferson settles into kind of the senior role. Madison's doing more behind the scenes, and and to your point, Kenny, it's not that Jefferson, you know, didn't have brains. Right. He wasn't the most politically astute person. <laughs> And Madison was very much so. He knew, he was like, okay, we just need to make this happen. Oh, Mr. Jefferson, it's great to say that, you know, the tree of liberty must be replenished with blood and all this. But, but let's, <laughs> right. let's, not, let's not write that into that speech. Let's, yeah. let's just keep yeah. that between us. Let's yeah. figure out something, something better. Maybe, you know, we are all federalists. We are all Republicans. That. Right, that right, that right, works right, better. Right, right. Let's let's <laughs> let's lean into that language, and, and also to the point we made earlier. Uh, again, for this partnership, Madison knows this government structure, you know. Yeah, and Jefferson maybe knows more about the world stage, having been in France. But 
Madison knows government structure, and that's an incredibly important part of that alliance. Exactly. Um, so the two of them. And, and well, isn't there also a generational, if I remember right, isn't Jefferson like eight years older than Madison? And then Madison's like eight years older than James Monroe or something like that? Exactly. So it kind of, it makes sense that Jefferson kind of became yeah. the, the first senior partner. And then when he was off the stage, Madison kind of settled into that role. But it, it's still fascinating and to think of it. You even have Jefferson saying at one point, I think it was in a letter in like 1794, 1795. He was like, Madison, you should really be the next president. Mm. And you, I mean, you wonder what if. <laughs> I don't know. Jefferson's so sneaky. That feels like a test. Where, where he's like, <laughs> and if you say yes, I'm going to have your throat slit. <laughs> Politically speaking. I, I, I'm, going, I'm going to tell somebody about this. And whatever happens, happens. I, I yeah. won't hear about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know what? I could see that. Jefferson <laughs> did have some... Jefferson yeah. could be pretty dark at times. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so it's it's interesting, you know, this partnership is coming together, there this faction is starting to come together. You know, this is a pivotal time for US politics. But again, this wouldn't just be all about work for Madison because in 1794 he met the woman who would soon become mm-hmm. his wife. So, as regular listeners of presidencies no, and Kenny, I know you know as well. We've covered this on three separate occasions in the podcast today. James Madison and Dolly Payne Todd met in May 1794, and they were wed on September 15th of that year. Now, Dolly was a wealthy widow. Uh, she was originally from the South. She came into the marriage with a son from her previous marriage, Payne Todd. As James and Dolly never had children of their own, Madison would treat Payne as his own son. Mm. But his influence would not stop the young man from becoming an irresponsible ne'er-do-well. And that's probably the nicest way of saying that. Pain was a pain. (laughs) (laughs) But for eight years, Madison was this key congressional leader. Mm -hmm. Even though he, you know, after his break with the administration, he'd often find himself on the losing side of the vote count, as Washington Mm -hmm. did still carry some great clout in the government, but he was still seen as being this important leader and figure. Yeah. But when George Washington went into retirement in 1797, Madison hit the road back to Virginia as well. He said, you know, I've been in the house for eight years. I'm going back home. Time to build my resume. Time to build my resume and do some behind the scenes work Mm -hmm. because yes, I'm retired. (laughs) <laughs> but he had to work with Jefferson to think through, okay, so we've got this actual guy who's claiming to be a Federalist. We know that Washington pretty much was a Federalist, but he was still yeah. trying to say, oh, well, I don't have a party. This is somebody who's out and out saying, I'm a Federalist. Talking about Adams? John Adams. Talking yeah. about John Adams. And so they were like, let's regroup, figure out what we need to do. And so at this point, Jefferson had been elected as vice president. And so he was in the nation's capital. He was able to report back to Madison what was going on. Madison, meanwhile, worked behind the scenes, carried on extensive correspondence, really worked to build up the party 
around Jefferson. Yep. He also worked with Jefferson on the response to the Alien and Sedition Acts, which the two men and many Democratic Republicans saw as unconstitutional and odious abuses of power. Now, while Jefferson wrote what would become known as the Kentucky Resolutions and mm. is used as, you know, for later politicians. Yeah. Very important document <laughs> to the 19th yeah, century. Jumped on this idea of states being able to nullify federal law. You know, they got this idea from the Kentucky Resolutions. Which- really is like it's such an interesting question that nobody had an answer to back then of who decides what's constitutional you know the constitution doesn't say nowhere in the constitution does it say and these guys are the tiebreakers if anybody's unsure so you could you could totally understand congress being like well we passed the laws i mean if we pass it it must be constitutional and you could see uh, people making the case, well, president can decide, or in this case, the Supreme Court would get to decide. Well, the states, I mean, the states are the ones who ratified the Constitution, so why shouldn't the states get to decide? So you can see how everybody would have a reason for arguing. And uh, I'll just not jump the shark and say that it really doesn't make sense when we let states overrule the federal government, and it causes big problems down the road. But these were interesting, you know, feeble attempts of, the okay, Congress and the government just passed these Alien Sedition Acts. They are unconstitutional. They are. Okay, so who can say so? Who can stop this? Who who, who right now has the power to do that? Nobody does. The Supreme Court didn't yet. You know, so no. who can? Let, let's try to see it, put this argument that the states can, you know. And it didn't go anywhere then, but man, would it have repercussions later. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Well, and, and you can also see how Jefferson would arrive at that conclusion because Jefferson he really was more for the states having more authority. He believed in kind of a smaller national government. He felt that government should be more localized. And so you can see where Jefferson would reach that conclusion and put it into the drafts of the Kentucky resolutions. But meanwhile, you had James Madison and this is something that's really interesting. I don't, you know, we, I don't think is as well talked about at times about the relationship between Jefferson and Madison, they would often have different points of view. Mm-hmm. It never really got to the point that, you know, it would cause this big rift between them. But this is one of those points because Jefferson is saying, oh, well, the states can just nullify an unconstitutional law. And Madison is like, uh, no, they really can't. And oh, by the way, Mr. Jefferson, I was at the Constitutional Convention. I helped to draft the document. Yeah. I can tell you they can't. Yeah. And so Madison was responsible for the Virginia Resolution. And so this was a bit less radical. Mm-hmm. It still protested the threat to liberty that was posed by the Alien and Sedition Acts, but it didn't go so far as saying, oh, well, Virginia can just say this is unconstitutional yeah. and it, yeah. it's null and void. Madison's draft was passed by the Virginia State Legislature in 1798, and this would become, you know, at that point, the Federalists had been in kind of an ascendancy for a bit, and the the point of the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions kind of starts to tip things the other way. You know, it mm-hmm. starts going more the Democratic-Republicans way, and they would see some payoff from that in 1800 because ultimately... Thomas Jefferson would become the third president of the United States, thanks in no small part 
to Madison's efforts on his behalf. Naturally, you know, at this point, they have this strong partnership. And so there is no doubt in anyone's mind that Madison is going to join Jefferson's cabinet. And he's probably going to be secretary of state. That was seen as being a key position at the time. Yeah. Yeah, And and naturally, that's how it played in. You know, Mm -hmm. Madison became Jefferson's secretary of state. But before we get to that, let's talk about three key takeaways from this period of Madison's career. One, we would not know nearly as much as we do about the details of the crafting of the Constitution without James Madison. And I think Madison would be very proud of that legacy. He would be proud of, A, his work in the convention, but B, being able to help folks to better understand the Constitution. Mm -hmm. Number two. Madison wasn't afraid of battling it out in the legislative arena. He was in all of the key debates of the time. He was a key leader in this arena. But three, Madison and Jefferson were a political partnership for the ages. You know, we hear about political partners. We hear about these great relationships, these great alliances. These two just really, they made something special happen, for better or worse, and and I think that's arguable, but they had this strong partnership. Even with their differences, they still managed to present this united front. Yeah, you know, it suddenly got me thinking, like, what are some of the other really strong political partnerships where both got to be president? You know, like that. And the, the first thing that comes to mind is maybe like Jackson and Van Buren, which mm-hmm. isn't because that was almost more of like a political of convenience and strategy. You know, mm-hmm. like they, those guys were from different parts of the country, didn't necessarily believe the same things, but they they worked perfectly well together and they built a machine, you know. Yeah. Is there anybody else? But I, I think that this one might have been the best pair in all of American yeah. history. This uh, Thomas Jefferson and James Madison from the same place, having the same beliefs, pushing for the same things, uh, supporting each other, and would not, would not have been able to succeed without each other, and did yeah. succeed because of each other. So, yeah. really interesting partnership. Yeah, and that's the thing. And and it is rare. Like, the only other one that I can think of is TR and Taft, but that did not end <laughs> quite bromance. so well. <laughs> yeah. Doomed bromance. That's a good one, too. But. The thrill was gone pretty fast after yeah. TR left the office. <laughs> yeah. The um, the one other thing I'd love to say from this part of his life and, and not get lost is uh, the Bill of Rights, which yes. is, you know, the, the first thing he does when he gets into Congress is amends the Constitution to show that it's a malleable document that if I pronounce that word right, that, you know, you should be able to adapt to the times. And it's not perfect and we should be able to improve on it. It's not easy to do, but, you know, he, he immediately tried to prove that lesson and leave it there for us. So I, you Absolutely. Know, I, I hate to ever let that lesson get uh, miss a chance to, to remind folks of that lesson. Absolutely. And especially considering, you know, we look at future amendments to the Constitution. This mm-hmm. was the only time to date that we had. And ultimately they passed, I think it was 12 Two ended up not yeah. being ratified, but you yeah. had 10 new amendments to the Constitution at the same time. That's unheard of nowadays. If we can get one through, it's almost a minor miracle. Yeah. 
I, I, I was like shocked when three happened during Wilson's administration, you know, yeah. I was like, whoa, whoa, three. Oh my God. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. 10 right off the bat. Big, 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 big. And again, that demonstrates, you know, just how much influence Madison had at the time. There was also a good bit of political will there. Absolutely. Yeah, it was part of getting the whole thing ratified in the first place. Mm-hmm. You know, promise people like, yeah, 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 okay, I get it. You don't like that part, we'll fix it. We'll ratify yeah. it, and the first thing we'll do is we'll put that in there, you know. Because you had so many of the ratification conventions that were like, well, we we kind of want to ratify it, but we need some changes can we send you our changes and you put them in and then we come back and no, that's not going to work. Just go ahead and ratify it. We promise we will get it through. And so he lived up to that promise. He made these changes happen. And that is also a key part of his legacy. And I think it really shows, you know, what Madison can do when he's in the right position, when he's, he's got the right things going on. He's, He's in a good place and especially making things happen in the legislature. Mm -hmm. Because as we're going to see, once he's out of the legislative realm and into some other realms, things sometimes don't go quite according to plan. So let's dive into his time as Secretary of State. Yeehaw! We're going there. We're going there. So, unfortunately, due to the death of his father a few days before Jefferson's first inauguration in 1801, Madison would take a couple of months before he finally got to Washington, D.C. But finally, James and Dolly, along with Dolly's son, Payne Todd, and her sister, Anna Payne, set out for Montpelier, bound for Washington, D.C. And James Madison would assume office as the fifth Secretary of State on May 2nd, 1801. During this time, Attorney General Levi Lincoln had been serving as interim secretary in Madison's absence. Hmm. Most of what he had done had been pro forma in coordination with President Jefferson, but there was one item that Lincoln handled that would have implications for Madison. Because when Lincoln took over the reins at the State Department, he found a stack of commissions for various public offices that had been confirmed by the Senate prior to the end of President Adams's term, but that had not been delivered by the outgoing Secretary of State, John Marshall. Lincoln informed Jefferson, hey, I found these, these commissions that need to go out. What should I do? And the president asked Lincoln to just, mm-hmm. let's hold off on sending off those commissions. Right. right, yes. Thus, when Madison assumed office, those commissions were presumably still on Madison's desk at the State Department when he walked in. But we'll come back to this. All right. All right. Okay. Okay. So just know, stock of commissions are somewhere. Yeah. That's not going to become a thing. (laughs) Not going to become a thing at all. Yeah. But just to kind of set the stage for us, as noted by historian Leonard White, quote, when John Marshall turned over the State Department to James Madison in 1801, its staff numbered one chief clerk, seven clerks, and a messenger. That's it. That was the State Department. Yeah. <laughs> and so this is a really small staff to handle the many disparate tasks 
that the department was charged with at the time because the State Department not only handled all correspondence with American diplomats abroad as well as foreign ministers in the U.S., they also, as they do now, issued passports. They also mm-hmm. sent reports to Congress. Mm-hmm. They supervised the Patent Office and mm-hmm. the census, which happened every 10 years. They facilitated the printing and distribution of laws and the preservation of public papers and other domestic administrative functions. Man, they had a lot on their plate. Yeah. I mean, they're, the State Department was doing a lot with a very small staff there in D.C. Mm-hmm. And one of their administrative functions in particular that I want to note was that the State Department also handled all correspondence with judicial officers, U.S. district attorneys, and U.S. marshals. Nowadays, this is the purview of the Justice Department, but at the time, there was no Justice Department. There was only Mm -hmm. the part-time attorney general position, as we discussed in the Charles Lee episode. Yeah, and there's not going to be a Justice Department for a long, long time still. It, it still kind of boggles my mind when I'm like, you're reading late in history and they created the Justice Department. You're like, wait, wait, they just created that? That, like, wow. You also give time. Yes. <laughs> yes. It was actually the Grant presidency before it would finally be created. So yeah. for a good portion of U.S. history, there was no Justice Department. And almost the first hundred years. <laughs> yeah. This was handled by the State Department. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So the staff at the time was an inherited one, and some of the folks had actually been in place since Timothy Pickering's tenure as Secretary of State. So that's going back, you know, quite a few years. Mm -hmm. But despite that, it seems that Madison only eliminated one of the positions, quote, to save money, according to Madison biographer Irving Brandt. Now, this State Department was temporarily housed in what was dubbed the Six Buildings, which was a row of houses a few blocks from the President's house in D.C. But before long, it was moved into the War Office Building, where it seems like it remained for the rest of Madison's tenure as Secretary of State. So, again, you know, this is really an early time in the U.S. government, and Mm. this was the early days of them actually being in DC, there were very few buildings to be had (laughs) and it was like, okay, well let's just find any office that we can. Yeah. (laughs) Early Washington DC is just like a snake pit. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And it also became a struggle because the Madison's needed a place to stay and they did a bit of moving in the, their early days in Washington. Initially, they stayed at the president's house at Jefferson's invitation, and he was actually like, you know, guys, it's great having you here. Why do you (laughs) want to move somewhere else? Just stay with me. I've got this big house. It's just Meriwether Lewis and me. So, you know, just move in with me. It'll be cool. And it was great until until Jefferson's habit habit of walking around with an open robe just started to freak everybody out a little too much. Exactly. You know, Dolly Madison came down for coffee one morning and hello, Mr. Jefferson. <laughs> yeah. So the Madisons decided we really need our own place. Yeah. Yeah. And so temporarily they stayed above the State Department. But while they were back in Montpelier for the summer, they had their friend, William Thornton, who was the also the architect of the U.S. Capitol, find them a place. 
Now, you have to wonder whether Thornton just really wanted the Madisons there or he had like a last minute panic. Oh, crap. I was supposed to find the Madisons a place because the place that he found for them was right next door. Ah, that's easy. (laughs) Convenient. Convenient. But that's where the Madisons would stay for the remainder of James's time as Secretary of State. So let's go back to that, that stack of commissions for a minute before we really dive into kind of Madison's oh, those role. Little things? Yeah. Those little things. And so this would ultimately be a case because one of the people, William Marbury, who was supposed to be issued one of those commissions, you know, he goes every day, he's checking his mail. No commission yet. I know that they appointed me. I know that it was confirmed. Where's my commission? When am I supposed to start? (laughs) And he's not the only one. Like a few of the other folks are like, I know they said that they were offering me this position and it should be coming. And so they ended up filing a lawsuit, which went to the Supreme Court Mm -hmm. and became the case of Marbury v. Madison, which Madison was you know, on the defense having to explain, well, these people were confirmed by the Senate. They are supposed to be in their positions. Where are the commissions? Madison and Lincoln at this time, because of course, both of them ended up having to give testimony. They were kind of wishy-washy with this. They were like, well, I know that there were commissions around here. I'm not really sure what happened. You know, turn my back. Maybe somebody filed them. I'm not really sure. Yeah. Finally, the ruling comes down. Even though the ruling was, okay, they really are entitled to to these commissions. We as the Supreme Court can't really force Madison to issue the commissions. So it was just kind of, you know, splitting hairs on that. But the big thing from this case is it established this idea of judicial review. And so, you know, as we were talking about earlier, Kenny, you know, who's supposed to make these decisions about what's constitutional and what's not. Right. This is when we start to see the Supreme Court saying, well, that's us. That's well, so our head in the ring. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We decide that things are constitutional or not. That's what we do. So, you know, that's kind of a side note, but just wanted to point out that was that's one of the early pivotal cases and it has ramifications throughout the rest of US yeah. history. Oh yeah. Yeah. But let's go back to to Madison, you know, his role as Secretary of State. And this is actually a rather unique role because as described by Leonard White, quote, Jefferson had served for years at the French court, while Madison had never been abroad. And so it was natural for Jefferson to make the great foreign policy decisions himself. But that was supposed to be Madison's role. He was the Secretary of State. Supposed to be about foreign policy. And we see some of this in earlier Secretaries of State. So Edmund Randolph and John Marshall also had roles that were at times more focused on domestic policy rather than foreign. Mm -hmm. But Madison would really take this to a whole new level. He really was Jefferson's right-hand man for his presidency. Yeah. Whatever the issue was, you could trust that the president would consult with Madison on it, Mm. particularly as he knew that Madison would be able to guide him on the political elements of the said issue. Yeah. 
And so Madison biographer Irving Brandt describes Jefferson's method of approaching his advisors as follows. Quote, Jefferson, like Washington, submitted policy questions to a vote of the cabinet, but not in the same self-abnegating way. Sure of principles than of methods, he, Jefferson, wanted the chastening effect of advice on his own impulsive judgment. Yet pride made him reluctant to change a declared position. The result was constant informal consultation with those he most relied on, commonly followed by cabinet ratification. So this is something that's kind of key to Jefferson achieving this sense of harmony in his cabinet. He's going to go to the cabinet. He's going to ask for their opinions, but he's already made up his mind because he has a few key people that he talked to beforehand to actually decide on the issue. The the pre-meeting is still a very valuable way to get things done. Line up your duck before you go into that meeting, get people on the same page with you, and and then you're going to have a better meeting. (laughs) Exactly. You know, Jefferson, that was his style. That was his approach. But Madison wouldn't be Jefferson's only trusted advisor. So it wouldn't just be Madison that he'd go to, because as we discussed in his episode, Jefferson mostly trusted Secretary of War Henry Dearborn to manage his department's responsibilities. So anything to do with the, the War Department... He's like, Dearborn's kind of your guy. And he knew that he could trust him. He knew that he could trust him to work towards shrinking the size of the army, which was exactly what Jefferson wanted, what Madison wanted. Yep. Likewise, Jefferson regularly sought the opinion of Attorney General Levi Lincoln and Secretary of the Navy Robert Smith, even when they didn't always agree. You know, he he was like, you know, I just want to hear your thoughts. May not take them, but... I think it's important to to hear from you. If nothing else, it helps me prepare for all the stupid arguments people are going to throw against my brilliant idea. Exactly. You guys are going to bring the stupid arguments that I'm going to have to fight against. Yep. But there was one other key person they turned to, Secretary of the Treasury Albert Gallatin. At times, Jefferson would only consult with Madison. But... More often than not, he was consulting with Madison and Gallatin. You know, he really saw these two as his most trusted advisors. Madison was kind of a nose ahead of Gallatin in that, but he saw both of them as being very valuable. And Brandt describes this as follows, quote, Jefferson, Madison, and Gallatin formed one of the greatest administrative teams in American history. Yeah, Gallatin's an impressive guy. I I remember like, kind of passing by him in my reading and being like, I'd love to like go back and learn more about him. He seems really interesting. Well, you'll have to listen to the episode that comes out after this one ah! of <laughs> A Seat at the Table because we discuss Albert Gallatin in detail. Absolutely. Can't wait. As they come into, they're starting this administration, the first foreign policy issue that Madison and the administration had to face was a declaration of war, <laughs> which was issued by the Pasha of Tripoli, Yusuf Karamanli. Yes. And so Tripoli is one of these nearly autonomous city-states on the North African coast. Mm -hmm. And this is a big deal, not just for the U.S., but also other European nations. Their merchants wanted to engage in the lucrative trade in the Mediterranean, but you have these privateers that are working 
pretty much at the government's behest of these, you know, these city states and each of these nations, you know, the European nations, the U S they go to them and they say, well, if you don't want these folks to attack your ships, you'd better come to an agreement with us and you better bring a lot of money. And Oh, by the way, we want a lot of money. Old school bribery. Exactly. And during the Washington administration, treaties have been negotiated with all of these. You know, Washington was like, let's just let's just do a deal. It's going to be less expensive than trying to fight it out with them. Yeah, it's it's, it's basically a protection racket. You know, these these guys, these pirates, these privateers over in Africa, they're like, those are some nice merchant ships you got there. Shame if anything happened to them. Let me just grease my palm a little bit. Yeah, it's feeling a little light here. Come on. (laughs) And as, you know, we see in protection rackets, sometimes the person who is in charge of this racket will say, you know what? It's great that we had that deal. The price is going up. Price has gone up. That's exactly what Caramonly did. Inflation. You know, I got to take care of my mom. She needs a new place. My sister's car broke down. I just need a little bit more. You understand. And you would think that Madison would have understood, you know, having spent time in New Jersey, you know. (laughs) (laughs) You would think you would know how it works. Yeah, yeah. And so Caramonly in February 1801, he's like, this deal that we had, no, I need more. But Jefferson and Madison were like, do we really want to pay this guy off or do we want to send the Navy? Yeah. And in their case, they're like, you know, we hated John Adams, but he did build some ships. So <laughs> that's kind, kind of sitting there. <laughs> yeah. They're kind of sitting there. And, and that's the thing, you know, the state department was getting back word from diplomats in the area and they were advocating for a show of naval force. And so it wasn't just Jefferson and Madison saying, well, we should do this. That's what they were getting from the experts in the field. And so, sure enough, the cabinet agrees and they send this show of force. They send the squadron to the Mediterranean, mm-hmm. which we'll talk more about, you know, once we get to Robert Smith's episode, since he was Secretary of the Navy at the time. Yeah. But just know that, that this was happening. And Madison, you know, for his part, they did have other diplomats in the field. They're trying to make sure that none of these other city states declared war while they were trying to deal with the situation with Tripoli. So that was kind of Madison's role in this. And I got to think too, like this is still the time where France and England are just constantly bullying around and pushing around the United States. I have to think they were like, we need to find someone to stand up to, to hold on a little bit of respect and, and to show the world, like you, you can't just all push us around. Because right now, everyone's feeling like they can just push us around, take our stuff, pour over our lunch, you know, do whatever. And uh, them, we can stand up to them. Let, let's let's you know, draw a line in the sand to show that we are not just going to be pushed around by everybody. Exactly. And we will actually be talking about France and Britain quite a bit shortly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but while this is going on, there's also some problems closer to home. Because as they were pulling together that that coalition, that faction against the Federalists in the, the late 1790s, Jefferson and Madison had enlisted a man named James Callender, who 
had this role that would be dubbed in later eras as a hatchet man. He was basically the attack person of their efforts. And he was completely happy with that role. He loved it. He would launch these vicious attacks against then President Adams. And Jefferson would learn quite quickly when Calendar had his sights set on a target, he was relentless and brutal in the attacks. And this got Calendar in trouble during the Adams administration because he was arrested under the Sedition Act. Yep. So Jefferson became president. And at this point, he pardoned Calendar. Mm -hmm. But that wasn't good enough for James Calendar. So first of all, as part of his conviction, Calendar had paid a $200 fine, which, you know, wasn't an amount to be sneezed at at the time. It was big money. Yeah. And Calendar expected Jefferson to refund the money. The problem was, at the time, it wasn't that this went into, like, a a public account. It went into the pocket of whoever brought in James Calendar, so the U.S. Marshal that arrested him. And Jefferson didn't have a way of forcing this guy to give Calendar his money back. (laughs) Pretty please. (laughs) No, okay. (laughs) Yeah, no, no. That money's gone. It's already gone. (laughs) Mm. But instead of actually telling Calendar this, Jefferson ghosted him. No (laughs) response. He was just like, this will just go away. Yeah. James Callender was not going away. And you can just picture James Callender sitting there seething. What's going on? I got this guy elected and now he can't do a favor for me. I've right now got the picture of James Callender as Milton from Office Space, who, you know, they're like, technically he doesn't work here anymore. Let's just put him in the basement and eventually that'll fix itself. And at the end of the movie, the building burns down. You see Milton just walking away like. (laughs) (laughs) James Callender would be the person to burn the entire building down. Oh, yeah. Because Callender wrote against Jefferson when he didn't hear from him. He wrote, quote, I am not the man who is either to be oppressed or plundered with impunity. He's getting mad. Yeah. And now he doesn't just want his $200 refund. It's like, you're president now. You're Mm -hmm. appointing all these people to positions. I live in Richmond, Virginia. There's a postmaster position here. Why can't I be the postmaster? How about it? Lucrative position, by the way. (laughs) Yeah. So you get to Jefferson and Madison discussing this, and they're like, James Callender is small potatoes. We've got other people who deserve these positions. Bigger fish to fry. And besides that, this guy's coming across as a little... Maybe this isn't somebody that we need to be associated with. Right. His use has expired. (laughs) But Callender at this point was not just waiting around for an answer from Jefferson. He went to the governor of Virginia, James Monroe, also known as one of Jefferson's besties. James II. James II. But as Monroe wrote to Madison about the encounter, Calendar was, quote, so agitated that I requested of him to call again, hoping that he might be more composed. But when Calendar came back that evening, he was, quote, in the same temper. And 
Monroe just leveled with him. He's like, look, dude, this probably isn't happening. Just go ahead. Assume it's not happening. Mm-hmm. And he initially thought of maybe setting up a subscription to pay off calendar. You know, let's just get him $200. Don't care where it comes from. Just get it and get him out the door. Yeah. But he finally realized this was not a man who was going to be pacified. And thus he warned Madison that, quote, be assured that the president and yourself cannot be too circumspect in case he comes to Georgetown. So he's warning him. Calendar is probably going to be coming into town yeah. to find out what's going on. And sure enough, late May 1801, Madison has to take a meeting with Calendar and do Jefferson's dirty work. Now, Calendar at this point, he had met this lady. He was wanting to start, you know, get married, have a family. He's like, can't you do something for me? This postmaster position would really help me out. Let's go ahead and do this. But you could tell there's still, he was just fueled more by this anger, this fury. And he seems to have alluded that he knew something about Jefferson Hmm. that could damage him if it got out. Mm -hmm. It's a nice reputation you have there. Would be a shame if anything happened to it. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) You know, he's starting to run his own racket here. And Madison ultimately concluded to Monroe that, quote, it is impossible to reason concerning a man whose imaginations and passions have become so fermented. Though Secretary of the Treasury Gallatin eventually determined a way to force the U.S. Marshal to return that $200 fine, this did not stop Calendar from publishing a notorious piece in the Richmond Recorder in September 1802. The piece began as follows, quote, It is well known that the man whom it delighteth the people to honor keeps, and for many years has kept, as his concubine, one of his slaves. Her (gasps) name is Sally. (gasps) Sally? That's right. Sally. Well, surely nobody's going to believe that for 200 years. James Callender was the one who originally exposed Sally Hemings. Mm Mm-hmm. And so, even though James Madison tried to work behind the scenes, get this swept away, didn't work, it got out there, it didn't do quite as much damage as Calendar would have wished. And miraculously, Calendar somehow mysteriously ended up drowning in three feet of water in the James River in July 1803. That is the kind of allegation that you end up drowning in shallow water shortly after making it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, also, I, 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 one of the sad lessons I've learned from presidential history is if you do something just unbelievably bad enough, people generally won't believe you did it. <laughs> yeah. And with Thomas Jefferson, it took a couple hundred years before people finally started believing it. Yep. Yep. I'm writing yep. about Warren Harding right now. And someone's going to write a tell-all book about him boinking her in the White House and fathering an illiterate child and... She's going to be ignored for 90 years till a DNA test yep. proves it's true. So, you know, if, if you do something, if you're going to be bad, go big and you might get away with it. Seems to be the lesson of presidential history. Yes. Yes. And so, you know, here we go again. Now, here we get to more of Madison's role in foreign policy because his State Department would actually have more success than they did with Calendar. 
in negotiations with France. Mm -hmm. So Chancellor Robert Livingston of New York had been named as the U.S. Minister to France, and he was given kind of one key task. Let's purchase East and West Florida. So East Florida is what we think of as kind of modern-day Florida. West Florida is that part of the Gulf Coast between Baton Rouge and Mobile. Yeah, like if, if the panhandle just like kept going. Exactly. And so this is right there by our other territory. Let's go ahead and get it. Mm -hmm. It should be noted that Livingston's original instructions didn't include negotiating a purchase of New Orleans or any part of Louisiana, though the reasoning behind instructing Livingston to seek that purchase was the same as the one for the Floridas. So basically, at this point, there was a secret treaty that everybody knew about but it was still a secret treaty. It hadn't been publicly proclaimed that Louisiana had been exchanged back to France. And it was believed that the Floridas were part of that deal. So Feldman, in his work on James Madison, mm -hmm. he actually had a reason they thought that New Orleans wasn't included in Livingston's instructions because, quote, perhaps Madison simply did not expect that Napoleon would agree to a purchase of New Orleans. Yeah. It's like, the Floridas, who really cares about them? They're not profitable colonies anyway. Maybe we can just unload them. Yeah. But, as we've seen in the Jefferson Presidency series, Livingston tried to negotiate, didn't really go anywhere. The French did what the French did at the time. Oh, yeah, 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 that sounds like a great idea. We'll talk about it in the next meeting. And, yeah. oh, by the way... You know, our next meeting will be in like three months. <laughs> so he was dragged on month after month. And so Jefferson and Madison are sitting there and they're like, we need to move this along. What's going to help them to realize that we're serious about this? Let's send James Monroe. The French know that he's close to us. Mm -hmm. They'll get the sense that this is really something that we're interested in. And so Monroe was sent. And a couple of days prior to Monroe's arrival, so they had heard Monroe was coming, mm -hmm. the French foreign minister, Talleyrand, finally talked seriously with Livingston about the possibility of the U.S. purchasing Louisiana. Mm -hmm. Now, we'll talk more about the details when we get to Monroe's episode of the special series. But just mm -hmm. for our purposes, in May 1803, Livingston and Monroe signed a deal to purchase the entirety of the Louisiana colony all 828,000 acres of it for $15 million. Upon hearing the news, Madison deemed it, quote, a truly noble acquisition. Mm -hmm. Still, he did have some words of criticism for Livingston, which he shared with Monroe. The Secretary of State felt that, quote, it is highly probable that if the appeal to the French government had been less hackneyed by the ordinary minister, i.e. Livingston, and been made under the solemnity of a joint and extraordinary embassy, the impression would have been greater and the bargain better. So this was already a pretty great bargain, but Madison yeah. blamed Livingston for not getting a better deal. One of the most sweetheart land deals between countries in the history of the world, if not like the best, and... Uh, well, okay. All right. Guy can be picky. Sure. Whatever. <laughs> yeah, just a little picky. And 
Jefferson and Madison would kind of be disappointed because they thought that the Floridas, or at least West Florida, was part of the deal, but it ultimately wasn't. Yeah. Given the nature of communications at the time, Madison's involvement in the actual negotiations was pretty limited. It took time. You know, he would send instructions. He'd get reports back. So he wasn't directly involved in the negotiations so much, but his role became when the treaty got to Washington, D.C. for ratification. Because Jefferson, even though he was like, oh, well, this is a great deal, he kind of had a think, and he's like, but it doesn't say in the Constitution that we can actually acquire territory. And Jefferson believed in a strict construction of the Constitution. (laughs) And so we'll explore some other cabinet members' opinions as we go along in their episodes But Madison, having been a member of the Constitutional Convention, again, getting back to, oh, you remember I helped to draft this thing? He had some unique insight on the matter. So Jefferson drafted a constitutional amendment, which would give the firm authority to acquire Louisiana and bring it into the Union. Madison sent back some proposed changes. Madison, along with Gallatin, had the same opinion Congress was well within its rights to acquire territory. There was no question about that. That was just inherent of a function of government. But for Madison, the problem was in actually bringing this new territory into the Union. Hmm. Thus, he proposed to Jefferson that his amendment would include language that would accomplish this and also include a line that, quote, Congress may sever from the United States territory not heretofore within the United States with the consent of a majority of the free males above 21 years inhabiting such territory. So basically, this is saying if a territory votes, a majority of the white males say that they want to join the United States, they can join the United States. Got it. So the so you said the territory has to vote for this. Exactly. Huh. You know, it, it could be through an acquisition or it could be through annexation. And that's going to come up time and again in U.S. history, as we'll see in later episodes. But ultimately, like all this back and forth about what this constitutional amendment should include became futile because Livingston wrote back, the French are starting to have second thoughts. Go ahead and ratify the treaty immediately. Yep, yep. And so this is where you get the pragmatist in Madison and in the entire cabinet, they're like, just go ahead, do it because it's going to take time to push through this constitutional amendment and we're going to lose Louisiana. So they were ultimately successful in the effort. By the end of the year, Louisiana would be secured as a part of the United States and the size of the young nation doubled. As there is so much to cover about the life and legacy of James Madison, I decided to make this episode a two-parter. Thus, I hope you'll come back for the next episode, where Kenny and I will continue our discussion about the remainder of Madison's tenure as Secretary of State after the triumph of the Louisiana Purchase. After that, we'll cover his post-cabinet career in brief. Spoiler alert, he's going to go into a much more prominent political office after leaving the State Department. Then, at the end, will evaluate and rank him to determine whether James Madison has what it takes to earn a seat at the table.
In the meantime, I hope you'll give Kenny's podcast, Abridged Presidential Histories, a listen if you haven't already. You can go to his website, which is aph.buzzsprout.com, or I'll have links and information about his podcast on my social media. You can find me on Facebook at Presidencies, on Twitter at Presidencies89, and on Instagram at Presidencies Podcast, all one word. You can also check out my website at Presidencies Podcast, again, all one word, dot com, for past episodes of this series, as well as all of the narrative episodes up to the latest Madison Presidency episode. Until next time, stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st.